scripture for today's teaching is Psalm 69, verses 1 through 18. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those that would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs that I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayers to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from the sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. This is the word of God to us. Good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Man, it's so good to see you. Thanks so much for being with us. If we haven't had a chance yet to meet, my name is Andrew, and I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. So fun that you're with us. Hey, I want to say too, if you, uh, if you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is a, a place where you can wrestle with the claims of Christianity. You don't have to believe what we believe, and there's nothing that you could ask that's off limits. So thank you for being with us today. It's really fun to worship with you. Uh, I, I have a confession. I love Oklahoma. I love Oklahoma. Am I alone in that? Like, I, do you remember when it wasn't very cool to like Oklahoma? Uh, before they made shirts with like our state on it and, and it wasn't very popular. Like, I, I don't know what happened, but like th this place that I wanted to get out of so badly when I was 18, now I can't imagine living anywhere else. I've been born here. I was raised here. I've never spent more than 10 days, 10 consecutive days outside of our state. And it dawned on me as I was flying back in from Africa a few weeks ago, and we were landing, it was late at night, and if you could have seen my face, I was grinning from ear to ear, just thinking about Oklahoma, thinking about our city, and I was trying to convince the guy next to me that it was actually cool, and he wasn't having it. He was from Washington, D.C., and he hadn't been to Oklahoma since the 70s, and I was like, no, man, listen, like, it's, it's different now, I promise, it's awesome, and, and he just, like, wasn't believing me whatsoever, and I just, I don't know what happened. I love this place. Uh, even, like, I, I take it as a personal offense when people make fun of Oklahoma, especially people from Texas. You know, it's like, why would you do that? You live in Texas, and that's terrible, but Oklahoma's awesome. 
we are known, if you don't know this, as the big friendly. We're just a friendly people. So New York has the big apple, and we are the big friendly. So take that, New York. And that's just kind of culturally how we're known. Um, and, and, and so there's so much we could say about how great the people in Oklahoma are. But one thing that I've noticed about us that's really strange that I don't think you find if you go outside of uh, the Bible Belt, but especially Oklahoma, is when you ask somebody in Oklahoma how they're doing, the response and the way that I experience it, especially as a pastor, I've been doing pastoral ministry for about 12 years now, and on Sundays or throughout the week when I encounter people, especially when their life is literally falling apart, often how I experience them is like this meme. I'll just show you this. This is how it feels. Have you seen this before? It's like the house is on fire and you're sitting down with a cup of coffee. I'm fine. This is fine. And and, and that's what's happening. That's how I experience a lot of people when their life is falling apart. It's like something in us is not okay with being honest. Something in us is not okay with saying, well, actually, I'm not doing great. You know, the, the normal response, how are you doing? Oh, I'm great. It's great. Things are great. If you say great more than once in a response, you are doing awful, okay? Like, you're, you're, not, you're not deceiving anybody. Um, and yet, often on Sunday mornings or throughout the week as you're encountering people, their life is falling apart, and they will not tell you. They will keep that hidden from view. And I get it. Like, there's a level in which, what are you supposed to say on a Sunday morning in passing? Hey, how you doing? Well, actually, I'm not doing great at all. Uh, my marriage has fallen apart. I'm uh, in debt up to my eyeballs. I'm addicted to pornography. So things aren't looking good for me right now. But it's like, you can't say that, right? What do we do when our life is literally falling apart around us? Now, here's why I say all of that to you this morning, because what we looked at last week was a time in the life of King David where his life was literally falling apart around him. If you put a giant black X on his life and said, here's the turning point, when things started to look bleak, things started to look terrible, the wheels fell off, last week was when that happened. We got to the place in the life of David where everything has been up and to the right for him, and yet what happens is King Saul becomes more and more deranged, and King Saul starts to hate David, and David is forced out of the palace. He's forced out of his position of power, out of his position of influence. He's pushed outside of his relationship with his wife. He has to leave his wife, has to leave his best friend, has to leave the kingdom, and he's forced to run into the wilderness because Saul is chasing him down, hunting him down like a wild animal trying to kill him. So David's life starts to fall apart. We talked about this last week, being in the wilderness. One of the things that we said last week is actually the wilderness is a gift. It's a gift. It's, it's a gift that we do not choose. No one ever signs up for this. But it's a gift because it's in that wilderness season when our life is falling apart, where we no longer have anything else to look to for hope or security, and we are forced to deal with God. It's that place in our life where he strips us bare of everything else and actually does a deep work. Even in the middle of the pain, he starts to transform us. So that's what we looked at last week was the gift of the wilderness. But I love that we have First and Second Samuel, the books, and... We have the Psalms. We don't have one without the other. Because the Psalms kind of tell us the story of David's life, the details, the facts, the data, how he got to the wilderness, why he was there, what he did when he was in the wilderness. But the Psalms, they they kind of unveil the curtain a little bit and they show us not just the details and the raw facts. The Psalms show us what is David feeling in the wilderness? 
What, what, what's his emotional life like? What's his inner life like? Not just the data, but what's happening inside of his soul as David is spending uh, uh, over a decade on the run, hiding out in caves, in the desert, in the wilderness, trying to stay alive. And the psalm that we're going to look at today, Psalm 69, is one of those psalms of David in the middle of the wilderness showing us what it is that he was feeling. And I think this is really helpful. So if last week was more about the why, why does God lead us into the wilderness, today is more about what do we do once we're there? If you find, your place, if you find yourself in a place of suffering, of tragedy, of your life falling apart around you, experiencing pain that you don't know how to process, this is for you. So Psalm 69, verse 1, let's jump in. Here's how he starts. Save me, O God! Exclamation mark. Do you hear that? He he doesn't start out by like warming God up in prayer. God, I love you. God, you're great. God, you're powerful. God, you know, 12 other nice things about you, and then I'm going to get to my real request. No, he starts out, save me, O God! Help! Why? He says, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me and those who attack me with lies. So here's the context of what's happening in David's life. David is on the run. He's in the wilderness. We don't know when he pens these words. We don't know how long he had been in this season of the wilderness. This could have been six years in, eight years in, 10 years in. He spent over a decade in the wilderness. We don't know how long he's been there, and we don't know the exact circumstances that are going on, but this is one of those many occasions where David has been crying out to God. He's afraid that he's about to die. People are chasing him down. People hate him for no reason, and he begins to pray. He begins to cry out to God in prayer. Now, notice, notice what doesn't, David does not pray. David doesn't pray like this. He doesn't say, God, I know that you sovereignly led me into the wilderness. I know that you're working all things together for my good, so I receive this gift of the wilderness from you. Amen. He doesn't pray like that. He he doesn't pray, God, I know that you brought me here to strip me bare of everything else. I know that you're doing a deep, transformative work in my soul. Thank you for this wilderness. It's not how he prays. He doesn't even pray like this. He doesn't say, God, I know that you love me and that you have a wonderful plan for my life. All of those things are true, but that's not how David chooses to pray. Instead, David dials up the intensity and he prays, save me, God. I'm in the wilderness. Save me, God. Deliver me. I'm sinking. I'm drowning. It's like I'm in an ocean and I'm drowning and and the water's going over my head and and I'm crying out to you. My throat's parched. Save me, God. Deliver me. Get me out of this. This is the way David prays. He's exhausted from crying out to God. Physically, his throat hurts from prayer and from calling on God's name. Look, Look at the rest of the psalm, look at verse eight. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Look at verse 12. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. 
He's remembering, people used to sing my praises, my military victories, and now drunk people are singing songs about me to mock me. Verse 20, reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Look at verse 29. He says, but I am afflicted, and I am in pain. What type of psalm is this? What type of prayer is this to God? This is known as a prayer of lament. David is lamenting before God. Now, let me just define lament because I don't think this is a phrase or word that we're quite familiar with. So Adam Young, he defines lament like this. Lament is expressing sorrow, sadness, grief. Lament is pouring out your feelings to God. I love this. Before editing your words, before making them consistent with some sort of theology. So a lament is just saying, hey, God, I don't know if this is right. I don't know if this is theologically true, but here's what I'm feeling right now. And I'm not only going to allow myself to feel what I'm feeling, but I'm going to tell you what I'm actually feeling. I'm going to tell you truthfully and honestly what's going on in my heart right now. So it's, it's twofold. Lament is allowing yourself to feel the pain, and then it's expressing your pain to God, your sorrow to God, your grief to God. And lament is something that David was actually doing in the wilderness. He wasn't theologizing it away. He wasn't saying, thank you, God, for this wonderful gift called the wilderness. I know you're transforming, transforming me. No, it's God, why? God, help me. God, get me out of this. Save me. And by the way, if you're thinking, well, Psalm 69, maybe this is just like a bad day for David. And maybe this is the only psalm that sounds like that. Well, you would be mistaken. Let me just give you a few other psalms because this is all over the place. Psalm 6, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. If you sat down with a friend and they said, yeah, like I cry so much my bed is wet from crying. I'm like weeping all the time. Your friend would probably, you would probably say back to your friend, hey, hey, bro, like you need to go see a doctor. You need to get on some medicine. Things are not okay with you right now. And this was just in David's life. Here's another one, Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Could you get more honest with God? Another one, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Do you hear the, 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 the anger in David's voice as he says that? Are you gonna just forget me forever? How long? How long is this gonna go? And then again in Psalm 22, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He just assumes that God has forsaken him. Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. These are unbelievably raw, honest statements to God. God, why when I cry to you, are you completely dead silent? Why do you hide from me? 
Why are you allowing this? How long is this gonna go? Will you just forget about me forever? I cry to you, but you don't respond. And by the way, if you're thinking like, maybe this is David's personal private prayer journal. He's like writing prayers out to God and then shoving them in a drawer somewhere. I hope no one ever sees this. No, that's not what he's doing. He's writing out these prayers. He's handing it to the choir master. He's like, hey, I wrote a new song for us to sing together on Sunday. Are you ready for this? It's called, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It goes like this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Line one. And then we'll go to line two, will you forget me forever? And then we'll go to line three, this really sucks and I hate it and I think you hate me. And then that'll be the end of the song. And then we'll go to another song. And it's like, why are you kidding me? This is how it was. And here's my point. That lament is something that David not only allowed himself to feel, but it was something he allowed himself to express both to God and to the community of the people of God. This is something that the people of God are supposed to be brought in together on, even though sometimes we're having good days and sometimes we're having bad days. Lament was a corporate communal reality for the people of God. Soong Chan Ra, a professor at North Park University, he wrote a commentary on lamentations. But by the way, uh, there's an entire book of the Bible on lamenting. It's called Lamentations, right? An entire book devoted to nothing but a lament. And in 2015, he wrote this, and here's what he discovered. He, he discovered that out of 150 psalms, 70% of them deal with grief or lament. 70%. That's over two-thirds of the psalms deal with grief and lament. And then he contrasted that with modern American worship and liturgy. And here's what he found. As he contrasted that with songs that were sung by American Catholics and mainline denominations in 2015, so this is like Lutheran, uh, uh, Episcopalian, Anglican, here's what he discovered. Only 15% of their songs were about grief or lament. Only 15%. And if you're like, well, that's bad, but that's not terrible. Well, it gets worse. Because when he looked at the American evangelical church, here's what he found. The, the top 100 worship songs sung in 2015, only 5 to 10% even contained lyrics about grief or lament. And then listen, less than 1% of modern worship songs could even be considered a true song of lament. We do not know how to lament as an American culture. That's my point. How did this happen? How did we get here to the place where we are unable to even understand our pain and process and express our pain in a lament to God? What happened to us? Well, in his book, Anti-Fragile, Nassim Taleb uh, basically made a, re a really interesting point. He says that um, what, what you saw in 1989 uh, when the, the, the Berlin Wall fell, so think like the end of the Cold War era all the way up to 9-11 or maybe the financial crash, crash of 08, that what you had is about a 20 to 30 year period of unprecedented peace and prosperity. And, and, and so here's what you had. It's like people that were born in the 80s like me and then the 90s and even the early 2000s grew up inside of a 
culture where they just assumed that the world is a relatively safe and peaceful and prosperous place, and we didn't really see a lot of suffering or tragedy. So here's what he says. It's really fascinating. He says that the result of that was that it created an entire generation, an entire culture that is completely incapable of knowing how to process pain and just assumes that everything is going to go great in their life. And so the slightest bit of tragedy, the slightest bit of suffering that happens, it completely devastates us. But because we have no roadmap, we have no idea how to process in healthy ways the pain that we're really feeling. And so we don't deal with it at all. So how does our culture respond to pain? How does our culture deal with our pain? Well, there's a few strategies that we employ. Here's the first one. We numb out. Numbing out is our number one strategy for dealing with pain. And we have a thousand different ways that we do this. It's not that we don't feel it. It's just the second we feel pain, we do something to not feel that anymore. So are you hurting? Was today a really rough day? Well, just go out to eat. Go out to eat. Are you having a tough time? Is life hard right now? Schedule a vacation. Are you sad? Get on Amazon and find something you've really wanted and purchase it. And listen, none of those things are inherently bad. Uh, we, we do all of those things, that's okay. But the problem is that we almost become obsessive about these things and it creates addictions because we are so committed to not feeling any sort of pain ever. So we just numb out. Pete Scazzaro says this, he says, in our culture, addiction has become the most common way to deal with pain. We watch television incessantly. We keep busy running from one activity to another. We work 70 hours a week, indulge in pornography, overeat, drink, take pills, anything to help us avoid the pain. Some of us demand someone or something take our loneliness away. Sadly, the result of denying and minimizing our wounds over many years is that we become less and less human, empty Christian shells with painted smiley faces. For some, a dull, low-level depression descends upon us, making us nearly unresponsive to all reality. There is no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality. In fact, the true spiritual life is not an escape from reality, but an absolute commitment to it. And by the way, I'm not just saying this to you as a pastor, like my number one strategy of not feeling pain is numbing out. It's what I do. And over the years, especially recently, I've been convicted about the different pathways I've carved out to deal with the pain in unhealthy ways when the whole time God is there and he's just saying, won't you just bring it to me? We numb out. Second strategy we employ is we dismiss our pain and the pain of other people. Because we have no grid to how to actually navigate our way into our wounds and through our pain, we, we have no capacity now to deal with the pain of other people. And so we've become very, very dismissive of other people's pain, just assuming that it isn't maybe as bad as they think it is. We do this all of the time. We do it especially around the issue of death, when you lose a loved one. For example, in most other cultures, they have lamenting liturgies, if you will, that they walk through that are very extensive, that create a place, an environment for you to intentionally grieve and process your pain. I think about the Middle East. In the Middle East, if somebody dies, in most cultures in the Middle East, they will wear black, not just for a day, not just for a week, not for a month. They will wear black for an entire year 
so that as you see them walking through the villages, you look at them and you say, that person is still grieving. They're still hurting. Let's not forget. Uh, in Jewish culture, and I gotta say this carefully because uh, I don't wanna say something uh, in the pulpit that I'm not supposed to say in the pulpit, but they have something, you've probably heard of this, called sitting shiva. There, I said it without any mistakes. You could see how that could have gone poorly. Um, so they, they have this thing where they, they sit shiva, and this is for seven days. They sit either in complete silence. Those of you that have lost a loved one, they get you together and you just sit with them in complete silence, or you just process your grief. And then every Sabbath day, you stand up on a Saturday, and there's a part of the service, there's a, there's a part of the liturgy where those who are grieving stand up. And if you have lost a loved one in the last 12 months, you stand up and you recite a certain lament. You recite this prayer to God, and it's to tell everybody else that's around you, look, this happened six months ago. Let's not forget, these people are still hurting. They're still grieving. This has affected them deeply. But in our culture, we dismiss Think about this. In the U.S., the average paid time off given to an employee in the event of an immediate death of a family member is three days paid. Three days to plan the funeral, get all this stuff in order, and then don't talk about it again, come to work. In fact, we'll even say, well, it's probably good that I get back to work so that I don't have to think about this. We dismiss our pain. And by the way, we even do this in the church, and we do this by throwing Christian platitudes to people that have lost family members because we dismiss. Uh, she's in a better place. Heaven got her angel. Don't feel bad for him. He's dancing and celebrating right now. This is going to be a celebration of life. Friends, that is a way that we in our American culture are incapable of dealing with the loss and the tragedy and the pain of someone dying. Jesus knew that he was gonna raise Lazarus from the dead in a matter of minutes, and yet when he came face to face with the reality of death, it says that Jesus wept because death shouldn't exist and it shouldn't be in our world and it shouldn't be here and it's sad and we should just be able to say, this is really sad and it shouldn't be like that. And we forget that even in heaven, there are Christians who are praying prayers of lament. Revelation 6 says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. Look at verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? People in heaven Lament. Let that sink in and affect your theology for just a minute. By the way, anger is often the result of repressed grief. And so if you find yourself an incredibly angry person and you don't know why, but maybe you know it, maybe your spouse knows it or your roommate knows it or somebody close, but like you find yourself with just, just anger at the slightest thing, chances are you've repressed grief in your life and you are not willing to process it and it's coming out as anger. We dismiss. And then finally, the third thing we do with our pain is we avoid it. We avoid either our own pain or the pain of other people. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you where you know somebody in your life that's suffering. Maybe they've got a diagnosis about cancer and it's like, you don't call, you don't text, you don't visit and deep down, you don't even know how to say this, but what you're saying to yourself is, I don't even know what I would say. 
You're just avoiding it. We're so incapable of dealing with our pain in healthy ways. We've so lost the art of lament that we avoid pain at all costs. We don't know how to express it. But friends, that's not helping us. That's hurting us. Soong Chan Ra, again, he says, the American church avoids lament. The power of lament is minimized and the underlying narrative of suffering that requires lament is lost. But absence doesn't make the heart grow fonder. Absence of lament in the liturgy of the American church results in the loss of memory. We forget the necessity of lamenting over suffering and pain. Look at what he says. We forget the reality of suffering and pain. When we don't lament, we forget that things truly are not as they should be, that things really are sad, that sorrow really does exist, that brokenness is in our world. And friends, here's what I'm trying to get you to see. When David was led by the hand into the wilderness by God, he did not just throw out Christian platitudes. He cries out to God, save me. How long? This hurts. This is painful. And he just gives full candid expression of his emotions to God. Lament is a gift. Lament is a gift. So for the rest of our time together, I want to just give you a few things on why and how lament can be such a gift to you and to me. So here's the first one. Lament is emotional honesty with God. What I found in my own life, and I think this is true of a lot of us in Oklahoma, is that one of our greatest barriers to prayer, to having a a healthy, vibrant prayer life, is that we're so busy uh, with trying to pray in a certain way that God could receive So we try to put on a a false self that uh, believes the right theology, that knows the right stuff, that feels the right things, and then we approach God in our prayer life, but we're approaching God not as we really are, but as some fake version of who we are. And here's what's so crazy. God didn't die for false versions of yourself. He died for the real version of yourself. He actually loves the real you, and one of the best things that you can do for your prayer life is to stop pretending to take off the mask, to take off the cape, to remove the costume, and just be you, but say it out loud to God. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, we must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. That's the struggle of prayer, isn't it? It's, It's not telling God what you think he wants to hear. It's telling God what you really feel, what you really think, what really hurts. That's the struggle of prayer. I love the words of John Mark Comer. He says, prayer isn't a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. Man, if you just embrace that, that would change your prayer life. God doesn't want to hear all the right theology flowing out of your mouth. He doesn't want to hear all the right things that you believe. He doesn't want to hear all the things that you know you should feel. He just wants to hear from you. Where are you? How are you? What's going on? Give full vent to God. Are you angry? Tell God that. Are you angry at God? He can handle it. Are you confused? Tell God. God, I'm confused. This doesn't make sense. Do you feel like you are in a pit of despair and you don't know how to get out? Tell God that. Are you inflamed with lust and it frustrates you? Tell God that. Are you bitter? Are you angry? Is someone bothering you? Tell God that. Lay before him what really is in you not what should be in you. Prayer is not a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. Number two, lament is the shadow side of faith. Lament is the shadow side of faith. Here's what I mean by that. Um, Think about this. 
the reason why most of us don't actually pray prayers of lament and know how to grieve or process well, especially with God, is because we are, deep down, we are afraid that if I tell God what I really think and what I really feel and the doubts that I really carry and the pain that really is there, then God would freak out and fly off the handle. He would be so upset, he would, he would want nothing to do with me. And here's my point, lament is actually the shadow side of faith. Would you ever go to maybe your boss, the person that could fire you, and express your intense, your most irrational, inarticulate anger to him or her? No, because they might fire you. So you're going to keep some things back because you know you can't trust them. Would you go to somebody who can remove the relationship, who can bar you from the relationship and tell them how you really feel and what's really going on and all of those things when you're afraid that they might break away from the relationship? No, because that relationship isn't a safe place. It's not secure. Listen, friends, when you go to God with lament and the real, raw, honest stuff in your soul, and you say, God, I don't understand you. Why did you allow this? This makes me angry at you. What you're saying is I can trust you that you're not gonna break away from me. You're not gonna bail on this relationship. You are a safe and a secure place. I have faith in you. It's a deep, different type of worship and faith when you lament to God what's really going on. This is what David does. This is what is all throughout the Psalms. It's a way that in a deep way you can express trust. God, you're a safe place for me to tell you what's really going on. Number three, lament is an intense plea for help. When you lament, you're not just complaining to God. You're not just like getting an emotional discharge, like, oh, I got that off all my chest, or got all that off my chest, I feel better now. No, you're actually praying real prayers. You're pleading to God. You're not mincing your words. You're more similar to a child tugging on the pant leg of a father or a mom saying, give me this, I need this, I want this, than you are just like a religious Pharisee putting on platitudes, praying to God. You're actually pleading with God in a real way. Notice how bold and, and demanding David's prayer of lament is. Even in Psalm 69, let me just read you a few sections. Verse 14, deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord. The end of the sentence, turn to me. Verse 17, hide not your face from your servant. Make haste to answer me. Verse 18, draw near to my soul. Redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. Can you pray like that? Yes, you can. One of the most encouraging things for me is to get around a group of very charismatic people when they pray because when they pray, it's almost as if they believe that Jesus really is alive and loves them. And they just go for it. You know, sometimes if like you've been in church too long, you're like, God, if it's your will and if you want to and if this is okay and, and you probably don't want to and it's totally fine, but you know, blah, 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 blah. Like, and, and when you get around certain people like David, he's just like, answer me, do this. I need it. You've got to come through. If you don't come through, I, I'm sunk. I have no help. You've got to do this, God. You've got to. You have to do this. It is an intense plea for help. It's okay to pray like that. Number four, Lament is worship, not whining. It's worship. Dan Allender says it this way. He says, a person who laments may sound like a grumbler, 
both vocalize anguish, anger, and confusion, but a lament involves even deeper emotion because a lament is truly asking, seeking, and knocking to comprehend the heart of God. A lament involves the energy to search, not to shut down the quest for truth. And it's passion to ask rather than to rant and rave with already reached conclusions. A lament uses the language of pain, anger, and confusion, and it moves toward God. That's beautiful. It's what a lament is. It's where you take what's really going on, and you're not whining. You're bringing your pain to God in worship. You're bringing your bitterness. You're bringing your frustration. You're bringing your sadness. You're bringing the crushed dreams. You're bringing the death of a loved one. You're bringing the pain, the infertility struggles, the whatever's going on, you're bringing it to God and you're saying, here, here. And what I love about almost every single lament in the Psalms is that although they start out in a place where it's like, why God and where are you and have you forgotten me forever? Almost every single one of them ends on a note of, but I know you and I trust you and I'm, I, my keys are on the table and I'm worshiping you. Even Psalm 69, it ends like this in verse 30. I will praise the name of God with a song and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves, more than a, a sacrifice that I could make. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy, and he does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, and the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and the people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Do you see what's happening? David puts his keys on the table and he says, I've just unleashed my full emotion. I've candidly expressed to you what's really going on and I trust you. I know that you're good. I love you. Even when I doubt, even when I struggle, even when I don't believe, even when I'm angry, deep down I still trust. It's worship, not whining. And then finally, number five, lament connects us to the heart of Jesus. When you lament and go through a season of lament, you are connecting yourself to the heart of Jesus in a unique, fresh way. Uh, It's interesting, Psalm 69, the psalm that we've uh, unpacked today and read today, is the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 22 is the first most quoted. Psalm 69 is the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And almost every time it shows up, it's either uh, something that Jesus said about himself or it's something that the gospel writers said about Jesus. My point is this, that Jesus lamented. Let that sink in. Let me just give you a few examples. Verse four of Psalm 69 is quoted by Jesus in John fifteen twenty five. They hated me without cause. Jesus felt that. When Jesus was being hated, the psalm, the prayer that came to his mind was Psalm 69. And he says, yeah, that was about David, but it's really about me. They hated me without cause. Verse 9 is quoted about Jesus 
in John 2, 17, zeal for your house will consume me. If you don't remember that story in John chapter 2, it's when Jesus gets so enraged with anger at the Pharisees who are making money off of poor people at the temple. You have these poor people that are just trying to come to the temple to encounter God, to experience God, to to meet with God and get some grace. And and the the Pharisees are literally making money off of them. Oh, well, to to make that prayer and that sacrifice, you need to buy this animal. It's going to cost you this much. And they're hiking up the prices. And Jesus Jesus had walked by this temple every day. He had seen it so every year. He'd seen this temple. He'd seen the people out there changing money and making money. And over time, his anger boiled to the place where he completely in a righteous anger went off on the Pharisees, flipping over tables, chasing them out of the temple. And it says, the gospel writers said, yeah, when David said that, it's really about Jesus. Zeal for your house will consume me. Do you see the emotional life of Jesus? Jesus isn't the stoic European with like beautiful flowing blow-dried hair. Jesus was this emotionally charged man who was God, who when he saw brokenness, it, it did something to his soul. Look at verse nine again. It's, it's quoted about Jesus by Paul in Romans 15, 13. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's what Jesus felt. And then finally, verse 21 is quoted in all four gospels about Jesus and his experience on the cross. Psalm 69, 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. When Jesus is hanging on the cross and the, the sponge on a hyssop branch was, was thrown into his face with sour wine on it, this psalm was going through his head. He was praying this prayer of lament, the title of which is, Save Me, God. Even Jesus on the cross, who for the joy set before him went there, is on the cross with this psalm in mind, Save Me, O God. Jesus lamented to his Father. He prayed with passion like this. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, look at this, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. If you were to be around Jesus, you would find a man who when he encountered suffering and death, it made him weep. When he thought about the cross, he's on his knees crying crying out to God so hard that his capillaries and his face are bursting and blood is coming out of his face. Jesus is, is crying and he has tears in his eyes and he's weeping and he's praying prayers of lament. Why? Why? Well, here's the good news. And you can talk about the good news of the gospel in a lot of different ways. But next week, we're stepping into a season called Advent where we remember and celebrate that Jesus left his place of glory in heaven and he entered into our world, not as this blazing deity, he entered into our world as a breakable human baby. And he has experienced every form of suffering and sorrow and tragedy and loss and and people accusing him of things he didn't do and injustices. Jesus knows what it's like to be human. And, and, And I love this. Isaiah 53 verse three says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And here's what that means for you. Here's the good news for you today. That if you're in a season of the wilderness, if you're in a season of tragedy and suffering and brokenness and life is hard, Jesus knows what that's like. 
And he knows what it's like, not because he's God, although he is. He knows what it's like because he became a human person. And it says in Hebrews 2 that because of this, he's able to be a merciful, gracious high priest that can comfort us and sympathize sympathize with us in our time of need. This is the good news of Jesus. He felt what you felt. He experienced what you experienced. And he can sympathize. And friends, the reason why he came was so that one day he could come again and look you in the eyes that have tears in it and wipe every tear from every eye and to make our world right again. That's the hope that we have in the midst of our suffering. So let me close this out. Where do we go from here? Well, I wanna invite you to process this question. What in your life do you need to lament? What in your life do you need to lament? Is it a marriage that has fallen apart? Is it the way that you thought your life would go and it hasn't gone that way? Shattered dreams? Is it the loss of a loved one? Is it a child that has run away from the faith? Is it a diagnosis either that you received or somebody close to you received? Is it unanswered prayer? disillusionment, confusion with God, questions about his goodness, frustrations, rage, anger. I don't know what it is for you, but I want to invite you to not numb out, to not dismiss, to not avoid. I want to invite you to own your pain, to walk into your wound and bring that to God in a lament. To help you with this, I want to invite you to pray some of the lamenting psalms. So check out Psalm 10, Psalm 13, Psalm 60, Psalm 79, Psalm 80. If you didn't write those down, then just Google Psalms of Lament and they'll come up. Pray those prayers of of lament as if they were your own. And don't just pray them. I Finally, I want to invite you to write out a prayer of lament to God yourself. Maybe you need to write it out and and just tell God honestly, candidly express, here's what I feel, Here's, here's what's going on. Don't polish it up. Don't clean it up. Don't send it through a theological grid. Just say what you feel to God. Lament. Because he is with you. And he wants to comfort you. And he wants to hear what you are really struggling with. So I want to invite you. Would you stand with me? We come to this time of communion every week. And we take bread and we break it. And the reason why we take bread and we break it is because we remember that Jesus had a human body and his human body was broken. When you take this, you are remembering the suffering of Jesus. We have wine or juice based on your conscience. And when you take this cup, you're remembering that the blood of Jesus actually flowed out of his human body. He suffered physical pain. And he did it spiritually for us, yes, but he also did it to comfort us even when we have physical pain. So I want to invite you, if you are a follower of Jesus that's been baptized, I want to invite you to come and receive the bread and the wine. I want you to come today, and what you're doing is you're bringing your pain, you're bringing your questions, you're bringing your lament to God, and you are sitting with him in that place, comforting him. He's comforting you. You're communing with him with the bread 
and with the wine, with the cup. I want to invite you to do that. You can do this by yourself. You can do this in groups, however you want to do it. If you're not a follower of Jesus, man, we're so stoked that you're with us. We're going to have some prayers up on the screen that I think are really helpful prayers that you could pray. They're prayers of belief or even prayers of seeking. So where you are, pray those prayers. Don't come and receive the bread and the wine. This is for followers of Jesus, but pray these prayers. Or maybe you want to come up front in just a minute and talk to uh, some of the ministry leaders that we have up front. They want to cry with you. They want to hold your hand and weep with you. They want to pray with you. They want to talk to you. They want to hear you. You're invited to come up and ask any question you want to ask. So followers of Jesus, you're invited now. Come grab the bread, grab the wine, and let's lament together those places that we need to lament.